Remain standing if you would. Let's uh, read together from Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. And then you can be seated. It's been a long time since you sat down. No, as soon as the prayer, you're ready to go. But uh, we want to stand in honor of God's word today in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, I pray that you would honor the standing and the reading and the studying of your word. Empower us today with your presence, with your spirit, to open our minds with understanding and our hearts with a comprehension that would enable us to live out what we study today. Empower your servant today as I humbly stand and commit to you my inadequacies. And it is, it is very important that we understand this vital truth today because we all here today desire to see you and your activity in our lives. So use it to strengthen us, draw us closer to you, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Today is Children's Day. Last Sunday, I worship in, um, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. That's about as far northeast as you can get from here. It was a little bit chillier there. As I said earlier, some of you were not here. You were still getting here. We worshiped in a movie theater and uh, a whole new dimension to theater seating. I mean, and uh, there was probably about 200 people in this church. It's where our son and daughter-in-law right now attend. They are in the process of starting their church. They had their first sort of in-gathering last night of some friends. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to Patty and I, they have connected with so many people who don't know anything about Christ at all, if not very little, so many unbelievers that it's phenomenal. Aaron has a gift and a knack to connect with people. And last night he had a sort of a, just a fellowship over at his house. He's beginning to build these relationships. And it was a, really a joy to see in just a few months of them being there, they moved there January 1, how quickly they've sort of connected with some people. And uh, it was a real challenge to me and to Patty uh, to connect and to uh, sort of befriend lost and unreached people. I'm not sure many of us do that as intentionally as we should. And so we worship in a, in a theater. But it's glad to, I'm glad to be back here today, glad to be with you. Um, man, Mark, good to be here. Thank you for the worship, praise team, and choir and orchestra. Awesome time in worship. Really enjoyed the songs today. But um, it's good to be back. Today is a special day for about several dozen of our students because they are right now on a mission trip. That's one of the things I really enjoy about our church is that we are very missional, and we have a couple of dozen kids and some parents today on a mission trip. I'm assuming that's where Jill is, Dave. She's not with you, and so we need to be in prayer for them. They're going to be there all week. Pray for the adults as much as the students uh, for God's grace during that time. And at the end of our service, we're going to pray for a group of people that will be leaving here uh, during the week next week, and they'll be going to Smith Center. So we've got a lot of activity going on as we seek to engage not only our lost community here in Wichita, but in the state of Kansas and around the world. And I love that about us is our intentionality with reaching a lost world for Christ, which is the commission and the mandate that Jesus gave us. Now that we're all settled and we've done with all that, 
Today is the day in which children are here, and some of you are going to have a hard time. Don't worry about it. When I was in church as a kid, we didn't have children's church. We just sat with our parents every Sunday. There was no choice. And I can't tell you how many times my mother would pinch me on the leg or would grab me by the you know, the neck and make me settle down. And back during those days, you couldn't wiggle, you couldn't squirm, you couldn't stand up. Today, we provide things like Miss Wendy did today, things to color with and write on. And uh, believe it or not, over the years, I've learned that children, even though they're in the process of doing something else while I'm talking, actually catch a lot of what is being said. You might be surprised. And so I am glad that on the the fourth Sunday, this is not the last Sunday this month, but on the fourth Sunday of every month, we come together as a family, biological and spiritual family, as one church to worship. And some of you people who work with children every Sunday need to be in here with adults from time to time. Right, Miss Wendy? Miss Wendy does, I know. Anyway, so I'm glad to have you here. So let's start out with a little story, uh, one of my favorite about little Billy. Uh, Little Billy is probably about six or seven years old, and he's coming in from outside, and uh, the, 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 the meal is about to be served dinner. And so he and his mother are about to, you know, enjoy this time together. And mom instructs him to go into the bathroom to wash his hands. And what do most children do when they're instructed to wash their hands? They protest, don't they? My hands are not dirty. My hands are really clean. I don't see any germs. And so there's a conversation that always always ensues between parent and child when it comes time for the children to sit down and to share in a meal together, to come to the table with clean hands, right? Any child in here like to wash their hands? I got one or two. You guys are old too. Well, you don't count. Some of you are germaphobes, I know. But that's okay, and you carry some of that stuff around you, and before every meal, you squirt it on you to kill all the germs, and, and I get it. But there was a conversation between Billy and his mom about his protest against washing his hands, and he lost the discussion, as you can imagine. And on his way to the bathroom, he was overheard by his mother making this statement. Germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus. That's all I hear in this house is germs and Jesus, and I have yet to see either one. Do you have a desire to be clean? Do you have a desire for purity? Because the passage that we are studying today says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a condition upon seeing God, and the condition is placed by Christ himself, only those who have a pure heart. What exactly does that mean? It means purity from the inside out. I think most of us, if we're honest, we're kind of like Billy. We, 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 we would like to put a protest up when it comes to, to spiritual cleansing. Now, some of us are a little pious, and some of us are, have been disciples for quite some time, and some of us would probably not honestly admit, but, you know, purity only needs to go so far. It only needs to go so deep because there are certain sins that we like to harbor. There are certain habits that we like to hold on to. There are certain idiosyncrasies about our selfish character and our self-centered nature that, that are really off limits for God. God, you can deal in all this stuff, but leave this alone. Don't meddle over here. 
Because I've grown accustomed to my selfishness and my self-centeredness. I like this aspect about my character that, that I just want you to leave it untouched. Because quite frankly, in order to deal with it, it's going to be too costly, too demanding. And I'm just not willing to put in the work, much less the effort. And in our piousness, I think we have a tendency to cover up sin. Because the Bible says that the heart is very deceitful. And we like to cover up things. And we like to pretend and we like to hide the fact that deep down in our hearts that there's some aspect within our hearts, our character, our passions, our desires, our nature, and our actions that are displeasing to God. Yet we don't want him to go that deep. We only want a superficial cleansing. Just sort of dust me off and let me go my own way and leave me in these little particulars over here that I want to hang on to. This thought is, is, is not up for negotiation. This attitude is, is non-negotiable. This sin, you, you just got to leave it alone because I, I'm willing to go this deep, but not that deep. And yet Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for only those will see God. What's your pet sin today? The one you're holding on to. What's that passion or that that feeling that you know that's not right, that you've been harboring, if not feeding? What's that character flaw that's there that constantly, as much as you try to push it down, it's like that ball in a pool. Once you let it go, it pops back up. I'm convinced all of us have one, two, three, maybe four or five of those that we just really want God to virtually leave them untouched and just let them exist and coexist in our lives and our relationship with God. And yet he says, blessed are the pure in heart for only they will see God. We are experts in the church today at masquerading our unholiness, our uncleanliness, and putting on an air of pious pretense before others on Sunday morning. And that is exactly the culture and the setting that Jesus is thrown into when he begins his earthly ministry and he begins to proclaim and to preach this Sermon on the Mount that we're reading in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a a culture that has been inundated by traditions and customs so much so that they had so many laws and all of those laws were about dealing with the exterior of the person so that they could look pious and obeying them while the inside, the heart, remained totally untouched, if not totally corrupt. They looked pretty. They sounded good. But it was all pretense. And thus is the reason why I think they got angry with Christ and the reason why they wanted to crucify him. He moved past the superficial and went to the depths of their hearts, which brought incredible discomfort and a desire to do away with Jesus. So let's look. As Jesus begins to address his disciples, there are three things I want us to notice today. I want us, first of all, I want us to notice the purity of the disciple. There's a sense of priority here for the disciple, and that priority is found in two aspects here. The priority is found, first of all, in the priority of pleasing God. That should be, Jesus continues to admonish us throughout all six so far of these Beatitudes. He says, blessed are, and he then begins to describe who are those who are blessed. And we have described now for several Sundays, that those who are blessed are those who are finding favor with God. They are those that God is looking, he is evaluating, he's judging their lives. And as he looks at their lives, he says, well done, good effort, 
And, and our lives bring a smile to his face. And as a result of, the, uh, of what he evaluates and how he judges our lives, he then gives us his favor. We receive his blessing, and the end result then is our happiness. And so he says, blessed are they, blessed. And he's saying to the disciple one more time, because I, I think Christ knows how dense I really am. You're probably not as dense as I am, but it takes more than once for it finally to sink in and for me to finally understand exactly what it is that he wants me to do. He says, I want you, Charles, to make it a priority to please only me and no one else. That's hard when you're the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's both, it must be a joke. It's not funny. Because there are times and there are things that, 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 that your pastors are going to do that it's not going to please you. And the temptation is to please people. But the greater temptation is to please myself. And yet God says that the disciples' priorities should be that we should please God. Notice in Psalms 914, he said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Whose approval are we to gain? Whose approval are we to seek? What's the priority? It's God's. Again, in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved. Do your best. We see that we should not only have a desire, but we should execute a discipline in that it is our heart's priority to please God and to please God alone. And there are going to be times that in pleasing God, you're not going to please yourself and you're not going to please the people around you. And yet our priority as a disciple is to find the favor of God. And the only way to attain and to, to, to have the purpose of God is to please God. And so you may please others, you may please yourself, but if you're not pleasing the Lord, then that is not the priority of the disciple. Your priority is to please God. But notice, not only is our priority to please God, but our priority is also to pursue righteousness or to pursue holiness. He said, blessed are the pure. Blessed are the pure. The pure is, is a word in which it is used of the day, meaning spotless. It means without blemish. It, it is a word that, that was often used in the contextualization of this day as, as a metal who was being by fire refined so that all the impurities were being drawn out. And the only thing left after it was in the fire for a long period of time, the impurities would, would be gone. And all you would have was nothing but the pure metal remaining. And for the Christ followers saying that we are, in biblical terms, are to be pure. There are not to be any, any, any impurities. Not a single one. And the activity of the believer, of the disciple of Jesus, is to work in such a way in that we are not comfortable with our heart's condition until all of the impurities are gone. Not our pet ones, not our favorite ones, not the difficult ones, but all of them are to be gone. Notice what he says in the text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. What's the call? God calls us to walk and to live a life that is holy, that is pure, and that is right in the eyes of God. And yet I find that not being the priority of many believers today. We give little, if any, regard to, to, to the question, God, what is right in your eyes today? 
How does my life measure up to your standards? Hebrews 12, 14 says, notice the commitment. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. Sort of a, 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 another twist on what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, isn't it? For without holiness, we're to strive for holiness. For without it, we won't be able to see God. Hebrews 12, uh, 10, 22 says, let us draw near how? Let us draw near with a true, a sincere, a clean heart. How can an unholy person enter into the presence of a holy God and not walk away feeling convicted of their wrongness? Now, I know what some of us are saying. We're saying, living in the world that we live in today, it's hard for me to live a clean, pure, holy life. And I would agree with you, but it, our lives and our world today is no different than the one that Noah was brought up in. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 8, notice on the screen, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that describe our day today? I ask you, does that describe our day today? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But notice what it says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord in the midst of all of that corruption and chaos and ungodliness and vile living. And, and notice it says their hearts were filled with wickedness. And yet he was able to rise above the conditions of his culture and his societal influence. And he was able to find a life in which God, as he evaluated and looked at his life, said, you, Noah, have found my favor. If he can do it then, we can do it today. So whose approval are you seeking? And how are you seeking that approval from God? Are you pursuing a life of purity? Well, that, Jesus says, is the only way we can see God. So we've seen the priority of the disciple. What is the path of the disciple? Now, five things I want to quickly mention here, and I wish I had time to dialogue here for a long time, but I don't. But there are five aspects about this, this path. There are five steps that we're going to take. It's a short path. It's a short journey, but we're going to take it. But in order to take a look at, at what we need to sort of lay a foundation before we get there, I want us to understand it says, blessed are the pure, Where? Where's our purity? In heart. Why did he qualify or why did he direct the efforts of our labor? In your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. The heart is the seat of the thoughts, the emotions, the personality, every aspect about you, your heart, your mind, your soul, your everything. Any aspect of, of what you think or what you feel or your drives, your desires, your passions, your, 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 your goals, your objectives, everything is described with the heart in the Greek context of this scripture. Everything. Whether it's what you think or how you feel, how you act, what you believe, what you trust and what you desire. That's the seed of all of that he's talking about. And he said, blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean, to be pure in heart? Well, in the context of Jesus' day, they missed it. 
Because if you see in chapter 15 of the book of Matthew, verse 10, he said, and he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What defiles your heart? What goes in or what comes out? Most of us get the cart before the horse. We're working on getting the exterior just right, leaving the interior, the heart, untouched. And if we think somehow we can attain to these rules and regulations and traditions and, and all of these laws, if we can just measure up to that, if we can do all of those things, then we'll be okay. But here he's addressing a group of religious elite who on the exterior have all these laws and all of these rituals and all these traditions, and, and they, are, they are many. And yet he says, the problem with you is, isn't your action. The problem is in your heart. You're addressing not the symptom of sin, which is in the heart. Notice he says in Matthew 15, verse 18, and what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So here's the deal. I act angrily in an unchristlike, unbiblical way. So in order to tame my anger, I try to act differently. But the problem is, no matter how much I try to act differently, it never seems to work. Why? Because the problem isn't my actions. The problem is in my heart. I have a hard time spewing out nasty things. And so I try to discipline myself to not say nasty things, but in any amount of discipline never works because the problem lies in the heart. The reason I hate is because I hate in my heart. The problem is the heart. And man has been constantly, continually in Jesus' day, trying to fix the exterior, leaving the heart untouched. And as a result, no matter, no matter how many laws or traditions or no matter how many how much effort or how much discipline they seem to produce, the heart is left untouched. And like I mentioned that or that ball that you just put on the water and you move your hand, it keeps surfacing the whole time. And they keep saying, well, if I could just act different, if I could just act different. No, the problem is in the heart. The reason I think the things I do and feel the things I do and say the things I do and hear the things I do and do the things I do is because my problem is within my heart. And the church for decades has been trying to fix the exterior, the actions, with, without touching the heart. That's the problem with, with sometimes our Judeo-Christian ethics trying to be enforced upon a world who can seek to try to live out these Judeo-Christian ethics in their lives. But no matter how much effort they try, they can't succeed, unlike we cannot succeed, because the problem lies within the heart. And unless there's a heart change, there won't be an attitude or an action change. And the reason why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you lust, is because the problem is in the heart. The reason you hate is because the problem is in the heart. The reason you exhibit anger is because the problem is in the heart. And you must address the heart, for if you miss that heart, you will not have the actions, no matter how much discipline you try, how much effort you put forth, it will never change. 
So how did he change the heart? Well, let's look at five steps. First of all, I need to reject superficial purity. We need to reject superficial purity. There's a piousness that we often have in religion, and that's addressed in Matthew 23, 27, 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. What's a tomb? It's a place where they put dead people, and they're whitewashed to look pretty, with outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. One of the... One of the most tragic things about working with the, the Soto Fire Department being their chaplain is coming into a scene or onto a scene and to, see, and, and to be in a, in a room where a dead corpse has been for several days. There's, it's a stench that you will never forget. That's what he's describing here. It's a foul odor. Would you try to live by rules and regulations and laws and leave your heart unchanged? He said, you stinketh, man. It's an outward cleansing while the heart stinks. He said, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. We need this in the church. You appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are tough words. Jesus is speaking to religious people. But he's saying to us today, we need to reject a superficial purity. Our, uh, the purity that we need needs to go deep. It needs to be complete. It needs to be total. There are no, no thoughts I can hang on to, no, no emotions I need to guard. There are no actions that are not off limits. Nothing. Everything's open and accessible to God. Number two, we need to receive the Spirit's conviction. We need to receive the Spirit's conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1.14 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. How are you converted to the gospel? Through the word, through the testimony of the gospel, you were convicted of sin, and through that conviction, you then saw Christ as a solution to your sin. You then, by faith, turned to him, trusted him as your Savior, and then the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit, he came in and he cleansed you. He gave you a new heart and a new life and a new purpose, and now he set you on this, this plateau that's different than the one you were in. He redeemed you, he rescued you, and now you're at a different level. And just because now that we're at that level, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop convicting us of sin, because that's still his job today. As in our conversion, now in our sanctification, the Holy Spirit has the responsibility as we open the Word of God, as He takes that Word that we read, and He convicts us of any and every area in our lives that is displeasing to God, and He will go deep if we let Him. But honestly, most of us on our reading and studying of the Word of God is either an opportunity to teach others about the Word of God. It's not really about me. And that's, that's a danger in the ministry as a pastor, is to spend all my time studying for you and not letting the Word of God convict me. Because I don't know if you know it or not, I'm not perfect. I said, I don't know if you're not, but I'm not perfect. Okay. I'm close, but not quite. You know, some of us should feel some guilt. But we go to church today and we don't want to feel guilt do we? And if we feel guilt, then there must be something wrong. So we want to go to church that makes me feel good. Well, you know what? There's sometimes I open the Bible and I read and it applies to my, I don't feel good. I feel guilt. And you know the reason why I feel guilty? I need to feel guilty. 
Because there's some, some uncleanliness, there's some thoughts I shouldn't have, some things I shouldn't see, some things I shouldn't hear, some things I shouldn't be speaking, some attitudes I should not be exhibiting, some character flaws that need attention. There's some aspects about my life that do not measure up to the Word of God, and when God speaks through His Word, it convicts me, and I don't like it very much. Do you? I don't. And yet the Spirit of God keeps knocking and saying, you got to deal with that. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying up here. No, 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 no. Go to the heart. Go to the real issue. Go beneath the surface and go deep with it. It's a heart problem, son. It's not an attitude or an action problem. It's a heart thing. And until your heart changes, the rest of you is not going to change. Because if you do, it's just hypocrisy. And it doesn't carry much weight in bringing me favor. Number three, we need to resolve to confess quickly once conviction sets in. Notice conviction sets in. There's a confessing that takes place. And when we confess, then we're cleansed. If we say, he says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, notice he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As soon as it convicts, my, my initial reaction is to cover up, but when I resist that action and that effort to cover up, it is exposed, I confess it. Confession means simply, I admit that it is there, I ask for forgiveness, and I abandon it. I stop it. You've not confessed unless you have said, Lord, from this moment on, with your help, I will no longer allow this to be a sin in my life. And when confession comes, the result is cleansing. But when I'm convicted and, I'm, and I confess, cleansing happens. And when cleansing happens, notice the confidence that comes as a result of that. Number four, he says we must remain confident in the work of God. Because you see, the cleansing that needs to take place is not something that you can do. It's something that only God can do. You cannot cleanse your heart. You cannot. There's no soap. There's no formula that can result in you cleansing your heart. Only God can do that, and only His Holy Spirit can do that. Notice Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what gives us access to, to the Father? The blood of Christ sprinkled on the mercy seat in our behalf when he died on that cross and his blood was spilt. And did you know that that blood is continually forever being sprinkled on the mercy seat, the blood of Jesus, for the remission and forgiveness of our sin by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the, his flesh. And since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled with clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies wash with pure water. There's a confidence that we have that once we confess, there's cleansing that takes place. And there's nothing like a bath. After you've been in the stench, the sweat, and the labor of mowing your yard on a very hot summer afternoon in Wichita, Kansas, is there? It feels so good. Doesn't it? Came in last night from, uh, from our, our uh, no, it was Friday night, came in Friday night, and we had a storm while we were gone. Did you know that? And for some reason, our batteries in our uh, thermostat died, and we came into a very hot house. I mean, really hot. 
and we've been in an airport for a couple of hours and a couple of planes. Those things are really nasty. You know that? I mean, just people coughing and stuff, it's just stuff in the air. So, you know, when you come in and your house is like 90 degrees, what, what do you want to do? You would take a cold bath, cold shower, actually. And so I turned on the water as cold as I could stand it and just sat in there for a while. And by the time I got through and got out, the 90 degrees in the house was okay. But there's nothing like feeling clean, is there? No amount of effort can clean your heart. That's a regenerational work of the Holy Spirit that does it at conversion, the moment you're saved, and he continues to do that throughout your life as a disciple. Be confident that when you confess, he will cleanse. And there's nothing like walking in a right relationship with God. There's nothing feels better than that. It doesn't last very long, though, does it? <laughs> as soon as you open the Word again, something else. It's amazing how dirty we get from day to day to day. Take daily showers, would you? It helps with your relationship with people. Number five, recommit to life of purity. Once you've been cleansed, there's a commitment on our part. Notice 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Wait a minute, I thought you said you couldn't clean yourself. Well, well, there's a part in this divine activity that we have a responsibility for because there are some decisions and choices and disciplines that I need to make. I don't go over here and do that. I don't, I don't look that way. And if, if I'm tempted to look that way, I look the other way. If I'm tempted to think this way, I choose not to think that way. You see, there's a divine participation. There's a divine partnership in which I join God and that he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee. I have to submit to resist. So when I am being tempted to yield in the flesh, and commit a sin, I then need to submit. There's a divine partnership here. James 4 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, how does that work? Let's take a look at one passage in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he has silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Whenever they gather together, there's trouble. They conspired. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, not really wanting to know, but just really wanting to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. He was summing up all the commandments into one. And all of these commandments that you have, the commandments of God are summed up in one, to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And if you want to add marks on all your strength, what does that mean? That means wholehearted devotion, love for God. A clean, pure heart is a heart that is undivided in its devotion to God, meaning there are no idols. There are no pet sins. It is a heart that is wholly committed, that is undivided to him. And when our heart loves him with all of your being, then and only then will you be clean. Until then, it's a process. So, what is the promise to the disciple? Notice, let's quickly look at this. For they shall see God. Who will see God? They. Who is they? They who have pure heart. That's a qualification that Jesus put here. Sin separates. Sin obstructs. 
Sin divides. Divided is at salvation, and it hinders in our relationship to God. And I look at that, and I sort of question. I thought, what in the world is he talking about? They shall see God. They shall, as a promise, see means to discern. What does this really mean? Would you believe that a lot of the commentators are cowards? They skip this? Because <laughs> I, I did the parsing of the words and the verbs and all that and dissected all that and got all the words. And, and the word see means to discern. That's what it means. They shall discern God. Well, what does that mean? And, and a lot of guys just skip right over it. <laughs> I don't like that. That bothers me. And so I really wrestled with this for half the day yesterday down in my basement in my study. And I came up with this, to see God. I want to see God. There's a guy in John 14 who wanted to see God. It was Philip. And Jesus was talking to his disciples, and Philip says to him, it would be enough if you would just show us the Father. In other words, he was wanting to see God. And Jesus turns to him and he says, when you see me, you see God. Right? That's what he said. John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Later in John 1, he goes on to describe that he, being the light, came to remove the darkness. What is A loss of sight, darkness. And so he being the light came to shine on mankind, the word in the flesh, so that we might see God how? In and through the person of Christ. So when he spoke these words to them, he was in essence, I think, I believe, that he was saying, you want to see God? I am he. Because continually, constantly, Jesus is always referring to him as equality with God, which is the very reason that got him in trouble with the religious elite. For the God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God. And so we see in the text, interesting enough, in John chapter 12, and Jesus cried out and said, without Whoever believes in me, I'm sorry, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So in order, to, in order to see God, all we have to do is look to Jesus. Now, it is true that no man has ever seen the person of God. We have seen in Scripture, they have seen the manifestations of God. They have seen him in people when Moses, you know, he had to cover his veil because of that. They've seen the glory of God on prophets and on men of faith. They have seen angels who represented God, but they have never seen God. So I thought, what does it mean to see God not only in the future, but in the present? So here's what I want us to understand in this promise. Okay, there's a promise to the disciple. We shall see God. What does that mean? First of all, we will see God in a prospective future. Notice he says in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, what we, what we be, what we will be, I'm sorry, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, he shall be like him. Notice, we shall be like him because we shall, what, see him as he is. 
There will be a time in which the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. And on that day, we shall see him as he is. We shall see Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his majesty and all of his glory. That is a prospective future for those of us who find ourselves in the position through faith in Christ that we have a righteous standing before God, that our hearts are pure now because of the redemptive, redeeming work of Christ and his spirit on the cross and through our conversion. We have been not only saved, sanctified, we will be glorified. And in our glorified state, we will be able to stand before Jesus and worship him like we did this morning in person seeing him as he is. What a great day that'll be. That's awesome. And you won't be like, amazing grace, how sweet, awesome. I, I know this is one of your nieces over here. A little girl. How old are you, honey? Eleven was over there worshiping, and you couldn't see her, just by herself with her hands raised to the Lord. She didn't do that to be seen, and I'm pointing that out not to make you seen, but it thrilled my heart to see parents who raised a child who knows how to praise. And it made me wonder what we're going to be like and how we're going to act in that great chorus in heaven. And I know for those of us Baptists, we're going to seem like we're in a Pentecostal service, but it'll be okay because Jesus will be there. It's going to take that to wake some of us up. But anyway, number two, there's a present reality in this aspect of discerning the presence of, God, of Christ. John five sixteen, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things was he doing? There was a guy at the pool of Bethesda who was there for 38 or 39 years, something like that. I can't remember one or almost 40 years. And he walked by and said, do you want to be healed? I said, of course I want to be healed. He said, why aren't you healed? Well, every time the pool stirs, I get there, but somebody gets up for me and I can't get healed. He said, well, then be healed. And the guy gets up, takes his mat, and he goes. Later on, we see in the text that Jesus meets him in the temple. They have a little discussion. And the Pharisees, the religious leader, are mad that Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And they got upset. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because he claimed equality with God. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But don't miss verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am always working. I think one of the main reasons why there are so many people that can't see the activity of God is because of sin in their heart. Most of us operate as disciples in spiritual darkness because we have harbored sin so long in our heart that it's so deep-rooted that even if we wanted to, unless we dealt with the sin in our heart, are not able to see the activity of God. And if you are so blinded in your walk as a disciple, and you cannot see the activity of God in your life, in the lives of others, and in the life of his church, then I'm sorry for you, and that is an indication that you have a heart problem, and you need to get right with God. Because God is always at work. 
He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never takes a vacation. He never goes on a distant mission trip. He's always actively working. And Jesus said, I go about watching where my father is at work. And when I see him at work, I join his activity. And the reason why many of us probably are not joining the activity of God is because we're not seeing his activity because there's too much sin in our hearts. I had a person one time left our church. You know why they left our church? Very piously said, God's not working there. I said, really? Yeah. Well, you just told me what your heart condition is. Because God's at work. He never ceases to work. It's a present reality. Number three, it's a personal reflection. To see God at work is a personal reflection. Notice 2 Corinthians 3.16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we come to faith in Christ and the transforming work of the Spirit of God regenerates and revives our heart and raises up from that dead state and breathes new life into us and cleanses us of our sin, the veil is removed, man, and now we can see. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom for what? Notice the answer is in the next verse. And we all, with unveiled face, being able to see, beholding the glory of the Lord, are what? Being transformed into the same image for the one degree of glory to another. You're being transformed, what? Into the likeness and into the image of who? Jesus. And when your heart is right, I want you to look into the mirror. And as you look in the mirror, you should see a reflection of Jesus. Slowly, gradually, patiently, powerfully transforming you into the likeness and the image of his son Jesus. And that work is not finished until Christ returns and you are then glorified. Until then, we call it sanctification. You're being sanctified. You're being worked on slowly but surely. I remember when I was, when I was a young dad, my, uh, my, you know, I have so many wonderful grandchildren right now. I have, I have seven. And I'm, I'm always reminded as I see them of, of Matthew, our oldest, in his room, right by his bed, was a little, little stitched thing that was there. It said, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. And I wish I still had that somewhere. Because God's not finished with you and he's not finished with me. And he will only be finished when he calls us home to be in glory. And when he does that, your transformation will be complete. But you ought to be able to see in your own life and the lives of others the transforming work of the Spirit of God, molding, shaping, and conforming them into the likeness of Christ. Because as your heart becomes more and more refined by the fire of the Holy Spirit and it begins to sanctify your life, you should reflect in your attitude, in your character, in your conduct, in the fruit of the Spirit. You should reflect Jesus you know what? I can tell you when I'm not like Jesus. And you can tell when you're not like Jesus. But can you tell when you're like Jesus? Can you see Jesus slowly transforming, working patiently, powerfully in your life to mold him and to make him like you? I want to teach us a song this morning. It's a song that sounds like an ancient song, but it's not. It's a new song but it sounds like an old hymn. It's become one of my favorites. Because I've learned in 1 John 1, 9, 
where it said, if we confess our sin, which you know by now after seven years is one of my favorite verses, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and he is just. I know you struggle. I struggle. And I know that sometimes we have a tendency to be in a study like this and to feel conviction and guilt and shame. And, you know, there's things in our lives that aren't right. We need to deal with them. And if you're feeling that, that's a good place to be because that means that you're alive spiritually and that Christ is tugging on your heart and he's pulling him to yourself and, and he's trying to work. Don't resist him. But as you yield to that tug, to that pull, I want you to be reminded that your cleanliness, your heart condition, while you join in a participation, a divine participation with Jesus, while, while that is true, that is he and only him that you need to cleanse your heart. For in the end, as we stand before the Lord on accountability day, all we have is Jesus. And I want us to learn this song this morning. And I want you to stand. I'm going to ask Mark to lead us in this song. And it may be a little bit uncomfortable for you in the early. I know how songs are. Well, we're going to close with this song. And I want this song to remind us, to remind you that all we have, all you have, all I have is Jesus in the end. I am totally and completely dependent upon him for a clean heart. Let's sing it. I once was lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew. Christ, our 
pray that as we stand in your presence this morning and we've learned a new song reminds me that you put in us a new heart a new life and a new song a song that we had not heard before until your redeeming grace reached down in the pits of hell and brought us unto yourself and purposed our salvation through faith in Jesus we had no hope we had no life we had no song without Christ and now with him we have life we have hope we have a song and yet in spite of our new heart our new life our new forgiveness we still need you for all we need and all we have has been purposed by you through Jesus so I pray God that you would take this study take your word and your spirit move among us and help us realize and recognize that it's not about laws, it's not about traditions, it's not about regulations, it's not about performances, it's about a transformed heart. They can only be done through the power of your grace and the work of your spirit. 